It's an honor to introduce you to our moderator this evening, Helen Molesworth. Helen is a writer and curator based in Los Angeles. She recently hosted Death of an Artist, a six-part podcast about the intertwined fates of Carl Andre and Anna Mendieta. Her major museum exhibitions include Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College from 1933 to 1957, Dance, Draw, and This Will Have Been, Art, Love, and Politics in the 1980s. She has organized monographic exhibitions of Ruth Asawa, Noah Davis, Carrie James Marshall, and Catherine Opie. She received the Bard Center for Curatorial Studies Award in, in 2011, a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2021, and in 2022, she was awarded the Clark Art Writing Prize. Over to you, Helen. Hi, everybody. There we go. Thank you. Thank you, Zandy, for that introduction. I appreciate it. And for Bianca and Sarah and the whole team here for gathering us tonight. Uh, it's a lot of work. I really am I'm so happy. Um, so just one quick moment, um, because uh, many of you probably know who have RSVP'd for this event that Sandra Jackson Dubont, who is the director of the Lucas Museum uh, for Narrative Art, which is being built uh, over an exposition park, was scheduled to be on this panel. But yesterday, when she was visiting with her mother in San Francisco, she realized that her mother was um, having some kind of cardiac distress. As those of you know, um, heart attacks present in women very differently than they present in men. And Sandra decided to um, take her mother to the hospital. And she was, in fact, having a heart attack. She's having a procedure today. So I would just love, like, if we could all just have a little internal moment of sending the most divine, prayerful, spiritual energy to Mrs. Jackson Dumont's mother, because any woman who made a woman like Sandra deserves all of our good feeling. Uh, so just to have that moment. Thank you. All right, so as you know, I'm Helen Molesworth, and I'm very pleased to introduce our panelists and get into this conversation. Uh, from my right, um, Andrea Bowers is a LA-based artist who's been recording and amplifying the work of activists present and past for more than two decades. Her practice foregrounds the experience of the people who dedicate their time and energy to the struggle for gender, racial, environmental, labor, and immigration justice, and those who are directly affected by systemic inequality. In 2021, a major mid-career survey of Bauer's work that was curated by Michael Darling and our very own LA-based Connie Butler opened at the MCA Chicago and traveled to the Hammer Museum. Uh, I saw the show, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, Bowers is represented by a suite of galleries, Vilmetter, Andrew Kreps, Kaufman Rapetto, Capitan Petzl, and Jessica Silverman. Next to her is Joel Garcia, who is Huichol and an indigenous artist and cultural organizer that uses indigenous-based frameworks and art-based strategies, such as printmaking, installation, creative action, and altar-making, to center and raise awareness of issues facing underserved communities, youth, and other targeted populations. In various roles, he's worked with indigenous communities across borders in support of issues of land access and self-determination. His work explores healing and reconciliation, as well as memory and place. He's a current Stanton Fellow and a former Fellow of Monument Lab, as well as a co-facilitator of the Intercultural Leadership Institute, which proposes to hold space for cultural production outside of white suprematist frameworks. And then Hamza Walker, who is Sandra Jackson Dumont's understudy today, who literally responded to a frantic, barely literal text, barely literate text from myself um, at around 9.30 this morning, uh, asking if he would attend with the simple response, yes. Um, 
Exactly. Hamza gets a little extra something something. Hamza is the director of LAX Art, a nonprofit art space in, here in LA. Prior to joining LAX Art in 2016, he was the director of education and the associate curator at the Renaissance Society at the University of Chicago, a non-collecting contemporary art museum. That, that's, a, that, that's like a supreme, that's such a bland description of who you are and what you have done that it borders on the false. But I'll, pr I'll proceed. <laughs> Recent exhibitions at LAX Art include Nikita Gale, Takers from 2022, a Candace Williams and show with Cassandra Press, uh, which, is Cassandra, which is Candace's Press, The Absolute Right to Exclude from 2021, and Post Commodities, Some Reach While Others Clap. And the Some Reach While Others Clap, that could give you a little indication of the kind of brain that uh, Hamza has. Anyway, thank you everyone for joining us tonight. We're going to begin and I have I have prepared three questions. The panelists the panelists do not know what these questions are. This is like a game show. <laughs> you wish this was a game show. You wish there was a car behind that there's a car over there and a bachelor over there. Yeah. You're welcome. All right, we are here ostensibly to discuss the value of art. And so I thought maybe one way we could ground ourselves uh, as, a, as a panel and also with our audience is that I'm going to ask each of you if you could describe an encounter with a work of art that was formative for the work you're doing now. It can be a work of art you saw as a child, it could be a work of art you saw recently, but if we're gonna talk about the value of art, I wanna know what kind of encounter have you had recently with something that moved you and that is somehow connected to the work that the three of you um, are trying to do out in the world. Hamza. Um, I mean, I usually am not a fan of, you know, origin stories. It's like, you know, of a sort, you know. When I was a child, you know, I was at the museum. Um, but when I was a 15-year-old, racing and running the streets of Baltimore, um, young punk, uh, there was a piece, uh, Brenda Richardson, who was the curator of Baltimore. Of course, you would know, Helen. I'm bringing up your old stomping ground. They fired that woman and gave me her job. They, yeah. They did. Yeah. That's... <laughs> little little I, ghost of Christmas future. I, it's like, this is why I said yes. <laughs> I, this can go so many directions <laughs> other than sideways. Helen and I, this is another time. This is when your memoirs come out. I want Dibs as the interviewer. Oh, you got so it. With, it would go be back my to honor. Richardson, seminal influence on me because of the work that she did as a curator at the Baltimore Museum of Art. She scored all those late Warhols. And the foresight, you know, that was amazing. So just having that around. But the Bruce Nauman on the outside of the Baltimore Museum of Art. Um, violence, silence, violence, violins. Uh, which you could see from quite a distance. And if you were a young punk, um, you know, all of the, you know, friends saw that piece. It was like, silence, violence, violence. I don't know what that is, but it's cool. So it wasn't even art. Like, we, it wasn't, we didn't know what it was, uh, just as a sign, you know, out in the world broadcasting this message, you know, the, the kind of, the sequence that those Nauman neons run in. Um, but that would go to a whole question about, you know, in terms of how I got here. I mean, how did any of us get here in terms of this business and with art and not being able to really locate it, whether it was, you know, the Velvet Underground and Nico, right? The mm -hmm. Andy Warhol album cover. And my thing with album covers is 
by and large, that is the art that was in everybody's home, or at least, and by art, I mean what is the thing in your home that pretty much occupied your visual attention the most, right? So we didn't have art, like paintings or anything up. It was either like, you know, books, book spines, book jackets, but album covers were the thing I probably spent the most time staring at. Right. And it took me a long time to be able to admit that, right? right. Like, you know, really in terms of what makes up my visual diet, um, so the Rolling Stones, Sticky Fingers, Warhol did that album cover, right. right? So even at that level, in terms of like what was out there and what would matriculate in as art encounters or experiences, I tend not to want to place them inside of the big house that mm -hmm. is the museum in terms of how we produce meaning, you know, or where we produce meaning. As much as thinking about it as just part of the flotsam and jetsam of life and what were those things that then in retrospect look at it and go, oh, yeah, check right. it out. You know. Right, that's beautiful. Well, um, I would have to say Dolly, but I think as an artist, like reaching that technical excellence is something that you want to do. But as as Hamza was talking, I'm thinking more of um, that scene in Purple Rain, mm. right? Because I think art is for me too, like how you hold space for people. And that scene where the camera's panning in the crowd and you see the, the punks and the gods and all these different folks. Um, I think as an artist for me, it's like how, do, how can I do the work to bring that type of diversity in the crowd together to do something? Mm. And that stuck with me. And every time I see that scene in Purple Rain, I think it's like, that's, that's what I want to hit. Like, I want to be able to do that. So it isn't the music, I mean, it isn't, the music has a lot to do with it. And the history of that place where that scene was shot, like those folks were actually there. Like they were part of that club, they were part of that space that both welcomed the punk rockers, but also the black music, the black folks. Um, so for me, that work as an artist is hard to do, but when you do get it right and you know, when you make it part of your practice, um, it can do a lot of stuff. Right. So for me, that's always been like a pivotal thing, like Prince got it right. I'm loving this so far. Bruce Nauman, Warhol, Nico, Dolly, Prince, Andrea. Well, I'm gonna say two things. I'm gonna say that, just quickly, I think that the ACT UP posters and ad campaigns were some of the most important artworks that inspired me. And then, what last was it last weekend? I was in New Mexico, in Berlin, New Mexico, to see a film about the making of documentary about the making of a dinner party, and um, it was three women were speaking who were so the making of the dinner party. Everybody's like, oh yeah, you know those like central core imagery plates, like the vagina plates or whatever. But like the amount of people it took to make that. I mean, there were hundreds of people, young people and experts who worked on that project, but every Thursday night, they would get together and they would have talks and it was full on fights. Like it was intense, Judy was intense. But I'm like, okay, so now these women are lawyers, one of them runs um, Bruce Nowens, runs Bruce Nowens like, studios which is monumental the other woman's a lawyer but I like out of that I'm like there's public practice like there's social engagement there's collective action you know there's politics and there's a really beautiful old-fashioned traditional artwork so I think that in that piece I and and the documentation of that piece is like really important to me in terms of like all the things that I try to touch on in my practice well, that's really, all of those answers are beautiful to me and what, what I hear in them that holds them together is um, how for each of you, there is a group of people that you are attached to, emerging from, or seeing that you kind of want to be a part of, whether it's the punks in Baltimore, uh, you and the, the crowd scene in Purple Rain and you with the dinner party and the hundreds of people it required to take that, right? So we're already in a space in which the traditional definition of art is 
been opened up, right? It's not a single proper name. You know, it wasn't, I went to the museum and saw Rothko and, you know, had to bow down, right? You're already, um, this idea that community or being in community with others is somewhere at stake in your practice or in these early experiences. So I think that Zocalo has brought us here together in advance of the Freeze Art Fair. It's like a little bit of a, a leading question, right? We're, because um, we want to talk about the value of art outside of perhaps its market value. And obviously I think one of the reasons we're here is because the current media obsession with art is very much rooted in its market value. Um, the, these fairs get enormous attention. Uh, they occupy the, public, the public's imagination about what art is. Um, they, you know, current news coverage of art often refer, like, t says how much things cost in the newspaper. You know, things that were used to be not the way we discussed art in public. Um, and, no buts, only ands. And the reality of art in the West is that it's been, art and money have been together, like, they've been married, like, forever. You know, like, this is a hundred, hundred, hundred year old marriage. Like they get married like in and with the Roman Catholic Church, you know, then artists invent portable painting so they can move around. Um, so they're not totally dependent on the church, but then the only people who can afford it and know how to, you know, ha even have a place where you could put it would be uh, the monarchy so you move from the church, you move into a monarchical situation. Then the aristocrats get pissed off that the monarchs have everything, so they muscle their way into the art thing. Then, you know, around about the 17th century, we get the emergence of a bourgeois class. You know, so you would get the emergence of a certain kind of family that is able to buy pictures, buy art objects. Um, that carries us right into the Enlightenment. We get a little French Revolution. We get a little American Revolution. And if we fast forward to the 20th century, we get the idea of the museum in this country as an edifying institution dedicated to knowledge, open to the quote unquote general public. We get this phrase called the general public. That is a, a phrase that really occupies the museum imagination. So in some way, one could say that in the long game of art, it's been opening and opening and opening and opening in this Western tradition in which it's so married to money. And I guess I wonder if each of you could, in, in whatever way you want to, either blow up that kind of potted history of art in the West and its attachment to money, or, or feed into it and see, are we, despite the voraciousness of the market at the moment, it, are there other strains of what we're doing that are, in fact, opening up this field and making, this, making what we do much more porous and not as bound to these big kind of white elephant institutions and or the market, which is where art seems to sort of toggle in between these spaces. Which is another way of saying like, is where's your hope meter at on this long game that we're playing with art? Because art really is a long game. <laughs> it's, I want to believe it's the, as long as the species itself game. Um, so we'll continue to do it as long as we're around. It's just part and parcel of what it is that we do, uh, despite all the institutional and, you know, apparatus you know, that surrounds it. Um, there's a dimension of it that you know, uh, in terms of where the hope meter is. Um, at least that's what, what, why I always feel, you know, you know, market, this, that, or the other, good, bad, fact of life. I, I'm not bothered by it, it's there, but it isn't the end all and be all in any way whatsoever in terms of a gauge of the value, you know, of work. But I'm interested in, um, I saw maybe two, if not three Picasso shows recently, the one at the Hammer, 
the paper one, which is great, and the Picasso and um, uh, Trump Lloyd, or, or the, the, the Cubism the and the Trump Lloyd mm -hmm. at the Met, also a great, great show. Um, and the Picasso, you know, stood out there. But uh, just thinking about, you know, those artists um, who, uh, who, are, who I admire specifically because of the spirit, the ethos of the work, you get a sense that it's like, no, 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 no. If you, if you, if you, if you, if this person was in a in a house with just like a with a piece of cardboard and a piece of string, they're gonna make smart. Right. They they're just compelled to do this, and they have a way in terms of it's just all about up here. It's about the imagination and a certain kind of inventiveness, and that's the spirit. You know, you see the Picassos, and it's like it's like oh my god, this guy. It, he could date him by the hour at a certain point, you feel like. It's like, um, don't sweat the technique. Uh, you know, or, um, you know, uh, I think Saul LeWitt, who always paraphrased Gertrude Stein, the work of art is either priceless or worthless. Right. You know, and in terms of the spirit of that kind of work, about the, the ability to, you know, it's a piece of folded up paper, that is the work. You know, it's the ability to be given away, almost. Or David Hamm is another kind of magic. Right, within the, where the work is, is I mean, the closest thing I can think of is magic, right? What, why, how can you get away with this slight a movement to have this maximum effect? You know? So that kind of spirit where it transcends or moves through, under, you know, so some extent it can be you know, subterfuge uh, in other cases, but so much bigger than you know, simply you know, uh, objects for sale. You know, there might be that dimension or, or the ability for the market to then absorb those gestures, whatever they may be, comes well after the fact. And that the value ascribed to the work, I want to believe, is first and foremost driven by the spirit and the kind of energy that that, that, that artist kind of exudes. You know. I'm remembering with, you know, I don't know if folks here know who the Chicano art group ASCO is. Very much so. And as an artist, you want to be accepted in these spaces, right? Um, but that moment of rejection is also an opportunity, and, and Asco definitely um, banked on that, <laughs> on that rejection. Um, and also working with artists now, you know, like a lot of times the end product, the mural, the painting, isn't even the piece that like pays the bills. It's the content that they produce for social media that drives the ads, that drives now the income. But Asco did this really well in the 80s. They documented everything they did. Um, they staged everything they did, even if it never happened, right? There are no movies. Um, and for me, like that, that idea, like the unpopular in between that they always like promoted, right? Like the spaces in which um, the spotlight isn't in is where like a lot of the magic happens. So for me, that always just stuck. Like, it isn't the, it isn't what's being showcased like at these arts arts fairs that is gonna teach us anything or gonna be groundbreaking. It's what's happening like on the outside of it, and that's where you know I think you find the magic and the change, and the artists who are figuring things out. For me, at, along the way, we we removed art from the art making from the culture of being an artist or the idea that we, like as artists, we embody this thing and that it's just another form of language of communicating, that artists make sense of the world in different ways. Um, and we've forgotten that. And I think the more we do, we, the more we allow artists to um, build bridges for different communities, different understandings, um, the, the less these art fairs are able really to commodify like what the purpose of art is. Mm. And for me, it's like, you know, communicating with one another. Mm -hmm. Andrea? I'm not really sure what the question is. <laughs> I think they're both brilliant. Um, what, what do we, what's the, can you? Uh, one of the things I'm interested in is, I guess my question is one, do you see a kind of, do you see an increasing democratization of art 
or a decreasing democratization of I see a decreasing democracy. You see a decreasing democracy. I see a decrease of democracy in general. I <laughs> 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 see I don't I can't that really is so separate true. art from capitalism, right? Like we're stuck as artists and curators and directors and all of us we're stuck in this not say I wasn't going to cuss in this fucked up system <laughs> and all of like the problems that I kind of have all re revolve around the problems with this but also we're stuck in this system right and so a lot of times no one would care about some of the work I make if I didn't have attention in museums and galleries and that's attached to the market Right, and that brings attention to when Tokata Iron Ice gives this beautiful video, this talk. But at the same time, I hate the connection. For me, it is this horrible, frustrating con contradiction that I struggle with constantly. Right. I mean, you know, I'm lucky to be in that position. What scares me is that when I moved to LA, you know, I'm old now. When I moved to LA, there was no market and people were just like, well, you're, you're, that's career suicide to live in Los Angeles. And I was like, but it's warm, I'm from Ohio. You know, <laughs> um, so, but now I see young people who don't understand that we had, that there was this like avant-garde and there were these like, like what I love, one of the things I love most about Hamza is like, his knowledge of art, right? Like, he can talk about the most amazing, rare, conceptualist piece that I've never seen. You know, have your Michael Asher postcards. I know. I, do you still have your Michael Asher shit? I do, I have them. Yeah. Are you sure? Positive. I want those back. No, exactly anyway. where they are. <laughs> so like, but now I see because of the success, and maybe I don't, I'm not, I don't wanna judge anybody, but I see young people who just wanna make money Right, like I feel like these things we talked about, changing systems and you know, thinking about new ways of making art that would like, I don't know, like, I don't know, like critique, I don't know, the way that like uh, scatter art was actually interested in critiquing the war machine of, of, you know, and the people behind it were like, you know, the people who bought art were the same people who were like paying for wars, stuff like that, like I worry that that kind of level of discourse isn't involved right now, you know? I don't know, but I, I wanna see more of that come back. I think the market can dumb down. It has a way to also be in more inclusive too, if it cho chooses to, but I worry that it's still capitalism. Yeah, that capitalism game, it's ruthless. It's a very, very ruthless game and none of us, as we know, can operate outside of it. There is no outside of that, that, um, that formation, if for no other reason than we all need to make rent. You know, we all need to make, we all need food. And there's really very, very few places in, on the earth where you can be outside of that system and still, you know, meet your basic needs. But I'm, uh, it's so interesting to me that Hamza and Hoel brought up Hammonds and Asco, like, you know, and that you both use the words magic, right? That, that one of the things art is, is even though there's no outside, I sometimes wonder, is art, is, and is this part of its value, that it is still the, the peephole to another place, it is a kind of portal, like it does do a kind of work that lets us um, either see our conditions for what they are and face them, but does it also still function for all of you despite the, the, the kind of crushing internal contradictions of capitalism? Is it, are you all still in the game, so to speak? because it has a value that cannot somehow be circumscribed by capitalist notions of value. I think um, financially stable, or I, I was able to become financially stable the moment that I 
abandon the idea of making art. Can you say a little bit more about that? When, when I became comfortable saying like, this funding stream doesn't work, how can we take it apart? How can we like, practice real equity with funding for artists? Um, that for me became a way to be a consultant. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, folks, folks who closed doors on me then later on realized like, wait a minute, like maybe we, we need to have a conversation. Um, and being an artist without making something is what's allowed me to actually pay my bills. So if I hear you then, you're making a distinction, and it, clearly this distinction exists, between an artist and art. Or the idea of producing, when we talk about capitalism, right? That, right. that productivity is, is valued over process. So could you then, if you wouldn't mind, could you define for me and our, everyone here what an artist is? Because maybe we're, maybe we're coming at this the wrong way. Maybe we shouldn't be talking about the value of art. Maybe we should be talking about the value of artists. I'm not sure. True. Um, I think if we let artists kind of embody that role, they, or let me back up a little bit. Um, for communities like mine that are, you know, indigenous communities, an artist or somebody who we now define as an artist would play the role of an educator to an extent or a translator, a seer, right? The capacity to see things in a way that most folks might not. Um, some of the work that I've done, although it has, haven't produced something physically, has been also looking at policy and finding the gaps and the opportunities to define something that might not be defined. For example, when we, when we toppled the Sarah statue, we knew that there wasn't a process to remove racist monuments in LA. And that became an opportunity to push and do something and define the undefined and then force the city council to define a process that empowers community. I think as an artist, we're able to do those things, whereas somebody who just does policy might be so deep into it that then they don't see like where these, these points of intervention um, where artists can exploit those and create stuff. Andrea, how would you define an artist? First of all, I just wanted to say, to answer your other question, that the one thing I truly, truly believe in is the power of art. Super optimistic about art. Um, I think that art can do things that nothing else can do in the way that we experience it. Um, I think that m most importantly, an artist is a critical creative thinker critical creative thinking. And since then, since, sorry, since COVID, I had no faith in form or material or aesthetic um, until COVID because I was alone and it brought me such great pleasure and got me through a lot of emotional stuff, I think. And so it's making me rethink all of that. But I think critical creative thinking is the most, I don't think it's good art without that. Mm -hmm. But I think, I do believe in craft. Hamza, how would you define what an artist is? I couldn't do it. I, I, you know, yeah, I, it's I, really I hard. You are you know, an artist like, though, in oh, the way wanna. that you curate, the way you think, the way you talk, you both are. Cultural bureaucrat. Yeah, I, I work for the city of that's, Chicago. That's your After five thing. years working for the city of Chicago, that's, that's, I'll show you some scars. I got them, I got them to show. See how he um, that? No, 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 no. That's, um, uh, but as far as participation within um, being I mean, to go back to that initial question, and maybe it wasn't so much, maybe it wasn't so much works of art that were um, 
uh, I mean, yes, there were works of art that would be seminal, I guess, in terms of formative experiences. Um, but maybe just the drive to want to be around artists, um, uh, you know, recognizing um, a cultural community, um, and that that's the uh, a place uh, that I wanted to be. Um, uh, as hard as it is, it might be to define that, kind of found the kinds of questions. Um, curiosity, I guess that would be the real, uh, the thing that, a space where I could sustain, it was, it was willing to go as far as I could go with questions and still keep going. Mm -hmm. So it could, it's like, well, how much, cur how curious are you? And, you know, so what are those things that, you know, exhaust your curiosity or is your, you know, is it inexhaustible? And art happens to be a space where I feel like it's like, okay, great. I, I can just keep on keeping on and it can keep, it can give me more, give me more and give me more and keep kind of generating um, uh, a curiosity that just keeps me going. So artists for those people that, that would do things that would just keep me, make me curious and I could, you know, uh, uh, ask questions and just, you know, just talk shit for hours. Right. You know, and that was that was really the real that I live for that space. Yeah. And I couldn't I couldn't um, to see those things, to hear those things, you know, concerts, see gigs, see performances um, that kept you coming back for more. Um, first hits always free. You know, you know That's so Baltimore. Where, yeah. Where where do I get more of this? I'm not done yet. You know, it was sort of the um, so still you know, still chasing that high. Right. So one of the things, one of the most, I think, trenchant and bracing new conversations that, I don't know if it's new, but it's, an, it's a newly invigorated conversation is uh, a lot of, museums, cultural spaces, through thinking about equity, which Joel has already um, brought up, that a lot of folks are trying to think about how we hook up this extraordinary engine called art and artists, a space of critical thinking, a space of seeing, a space of curiosity, how we're able to hook this engine up to something called social justice. Now, this is not in and of itself straightforward to me, you know, because there's lots of forms that we could, you could want to hook up or attach as an engine to uh, a growing demand, particularly on the part of an emergent generation for social justice, for new form, to think about social justice, not as something that had been completed, but that is something very much um, a project as yet unrealized. And I'm curious for each of you what it is about art, either as a practice or a set of objects or the art world that we're kind of sitting in today, this ad hoc. My friend Greg Bordowitz always says the only politics are the politics in the room. So we're a room and we constitute the art world right now. What what he just got a big job. He did. Greg did just get a big job. Um, what what is it about art that makes it hooking up to social justice? Do you think effective, useful, valuable, or or not? I mean, do you think we've misplaced our attentions here? How do you think we can do this work uh, productively together? As we're and 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 maybe not so much the how, but like. What is it about art specifically that has allowed this connection to become so alive for so many of us right now? Hmm. I think to answer that, I want to like, I don't know, clear up some assumptions. As an artist, assuming that we want the US as we know it to continue to exist, right? the place temporarily known as Los Angeles. 
Like how much are we investing in upholding this construct of LA? And so as an artist who's committed to seeing this as temporary, like it ends at some point, when I do my work, I'm hoping that it inches to that, right? The dismantling of capitalism, um, the dismantling of patriarchy. When as artists we're assuming that like we're investing in the idea of upholding the US or in this case Los Angeles, then we've already kind of lost the end goal, which is justice, right? So as a frame, LA has been an unjust place from the beginning with the incarceration and enslavement of indigenous folks. This is the root of um, mass incarceration as we know it. This is the root of the systems that gentrify communities across the country. And as a city, we don't even know that history. So if I'm being asked as an artist to do work that speaks to displacement, to incarceration, then I must know that LA as it currently exists needs to cease to exist. And that's, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a big thing to process, absorb, and be at peace with. So can I ask you then, when you're making work, is there something about this category that, call, that we call art, which is a big baggy category, right? That, you know, we throw a lot of stuff in that category. Is there something specific to that category that helps you think about the dismantling of this construct of Los Angeles? Like, is, does it get you something that maybe some other practice might not get you? Like being an athlete. Like, is there something about being an artist that is really germane to the dismantling that you're discussing? Well, we can create a new way of seeing things, right? Like, one, one of the things that the Zapatistas say is, like, everybody's an artist. But also the idea that we can create many worlds and where many worlds fit. So the undefined for an artist, I think, for me, is, like, exciting to see, like, this space is cluttered with a lot of resistance and resiliency, but this space over here is completely open for creating the world that can hold a lot of us. So going back to that scene in Prince, where, where can we all be together where we're like on equal terms? We're like, we're walking towards something. The idea of dismantling Los Angeles doesn't mean to, um, or the idea that there's fear in thinking of that rather than thinking that if we dismantle something like the notion of a city or the idea that we need a mayor or a city council, is there's like a fearful implication rather than thinking like maybe there's a lot of beauty and opportunity in creating something that isn't rooted in white supremacy. So as artists, I think we also ask big questions. Hamza, what about that? category art for you and what is it about it that is making it available to hook up to this other idea about justice and equity? Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm the, let's say, and I, I'll speak more from the position of organizing exhibitions. Um, uh, you know, to think of them as it relates to you know, topics of social justice and the way that um, what uh, the arts experience, um, the, the ways, uh, how and in what ways does it um, move you, inform you in a way that uh, uh, you couldn't get in another form, right? Um, and to respect that uh, for what it, for, for uh, all of its um, uh, <laughs> progressive dimensions, regressive dimensions, uh, dead ends, cul-de-sacs, um, the whole thing. Um, so I'm not just thinking about art necessarily as affirmational per se, right? What does art have to say about you know basic you know alienation? Um, 
you know, it can mirror certain conditions and in mirroring those conditions produce a kind of radical consciousness of those very conditions if you let it. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'd be somewhat wary of art being instrumentalized under the umbrella or rubric of social justice while at the same time saying, you know, feeling like, oh no, that it can play a very key and important role in, you know, at least um, galvanizing uh, what is its relationship to, again, consciousness, uh, the articulation of issues, discourse in general, um, how can they function, how can exhibitions function to, um, say, in their own way, raise certain questions um, because it isn't, it isn't, I don't think in terms of solving problems of social justice, uh, do I go to museums or go to look at art for solutions? And to be honest in most cases, not necessarily, you know, I mean, I have to ask myself, you know, what, if anything, am I looking for? When I when I go, you know, to look at stuff, you know, in a certain sense, um, uh, but there are uh, those experiences that do inform me in in and in terms of critical capacities, in terms of thinking, um, uh, that I I I that I don't get simply through what I hear on the radio, journalism, what I read in the newspaper. But the overlay of those things, right, between, you know, information, right, and how does art function in relationship to a world of information? How does information inform the art? How does the art inform the information? And that they're enmeshed and intertwined in this thing that I'm calling consciousness is very, very important, I think. Now, but I don't think of, I don't, in terms of how art is used, when I hear those terms about social justice and how quickly um, uh, it can be pushed or can instrumentalized um, in that claims can be made on its behalf about addressing conditions and issues that I'm suspect of, mm. I guess. Um, when I want more attention paid to art for what it is kind of unto itself, which is not to say it's altogether removed or isolated from life itself, um, but to be a little bit more wary and cautious and critical about that relationship between those terms of social justice, you know, in our, in two, our two quick facts. Through the pandemic, we realized that we, we, we can't live without art. Like we need art in some form in our life to feel good. Um, LA is one of, the largest creative economies in the world. Right. But it also has, artists here are paid, are, are low wage workers. So to me, I guess the question is like, do we actually value art at all? Right. Andrea, do you wanna take a little crack at this before I open it up to audience questions? I mean, I, I, I agree that like art is more than, it's not in the category of social justice. Um, no, it's, it's, I think it's its own category. It's its but own it, category. I, you know, harness it. I think that like. it's just been a passion of mine for a long time to, as a subject matter in my mm -hmm. work and to come up with strategies like how I can be in, of service. Mm. Um, and what art can do. So, I mean, you know, like I, I, right now I'm like looking, so in my, my generation is the only generation for my whole productive life that I was able to get an abortion, right? My, our generation. 
And so right now in my studio, I have documents from the late 60s from the Army of Three. They gave me a lot of their archives. Pat McGinnis did. And I have it. And I, they're all up on my walls. My walls are filled with them, and I'm reading all of them. So, you know, you go back to, I think, Hal Foster and this kind of, like, idea of, like, the archival impulse, right? Like, I can take a lot of time. Art is slow. I don't have to keep up with the speed. So I'm interested in that slowness and social justice. Like, I can look at these documents and do something with them from the 60s, and it's going to have an impact. So, like, as artists, we're doing other things, but we're using aesthetics and materials and we can find things or, or use things that maybe in this really fast-paced world might slip by, right? And look at them again, you know? I spent all day reading yesterday, you know? So I, it's sad, I but love I think... Artists. Huh? I love artists. <laughs> I love y'all. So, but I love somehow is my answer that, I don't know, that I think, you know, that... No, I think that's a beautiful answer. And my friend, the artist Josiah McElhinney, once swung his arms wide open in, on Michigan, Michigan Avenue in Chicago at, in front of the Art Institute of Chicago. And he said, look, he said, a machine for slowness. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's such a beautiful thing. It's such a beautiful You can thing. make like a three-hour documentary, you know. It's time for us to close. I want to thank you all for joining us tonight. You will be able to find a summary of this talk at the ZocaloPublicSquare.org. It'll be there tomorrow. Plus, there will be interviews with all of us. And you can also subscribe to Zocalo's newsletter, podcast, and social media, all of which stand firmly outside any capitalist situation. <laughs> They're just out there. Um, and please, finally, um, Join us at the Neue House Bradbury, which is in the Bradbury building down the block. For the, there's an after party until 10.30. Andrea, Hoel, Hamza, thank you so much. And um, thank you, our audience, for attending tonight. Thank you. Thank you.